Space Robots with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Today we hear from William Crow, CEO of High Earth Orbit Robotics, a company that performs health checks on satellites by using high quality imagery. On-orbit satellite servicing is a new area in the space sector. Essentially, this approach seeks to extend the lifetime of satellites via autonomous maintenance checks, repairs and refuels. But getting rich imagery off satellites and analysing these data to understand what is necessary in terms of maintenance and repair can be challenging. High Earth Orbit Robotics are trying to offer a solution for this challenge. William spoke to our interviewer Lily about the company, the commonalities between satellites and space and robots on Earth, and his views on the future of commercial space. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, I'm Dr. William Crow. I'm a uh, CEO of a company called High Earth Orbit Robotics, and I have a PhD in uh, swarms of satellites that are used to investigate asteroids, specifically during what we call flybys. And that's flybys um, of the asteroid close to the Earth. Uh, that that is true. That is true. There was another component of uh, my thesis, uh, which wasn't as exciting, where you have uh, multiple satellites in a swarm, and they can figure out the mass of an asteroid autonomously due to some um, interesting mathematics quirks that I was able to uh, exploit. But that was very, very, very boring part of the thesis. And the more exciting part was that there are all these asteroids coming closer than the moon every year. Um, And what we do right now when we visit asteroids is that we go on these extremely expensive uh, either flyby or or rendezvous missions where we leave Earth's orbit and then we take uh, generally uh, uh, two years or more to get to these asteroids. And it costs us over 530 million U.S. dollars on average to to do one of these experiments. So if you wait for the asteroids to come to you, if you wait for them to come through Uh, Earth orbit, and and we know of uh, 73 that have passed this close already, uh, then you can do extremely cheap missions. And I believe the best way to do that is is with uh, a swarm or a a better type of constellation than than what we use today. Can you um, talk a little bit about what your company uh, is aiming to do and how it spawned from your PhD research? Uh, Love the questions. Um, yeah, so uh, my company uh, uses the same technology. Um, so this type of flyby technology using, um, I guess, the, the ethos of a swarm uh, to investigate other satellites. So use the satellite to look at other satellites um, and first provide uh, what we call identification, uh, which is simply understanding uh, where your satellite is, uh, which is a huge problem, believe it or not. Um, and then for, as we go further on, we'd, we'd love to do other analytics, so specifically health analytics on satellites because satellites do uh, tend to uh, have many issues uh, throughout their lives and, and we'd love to 
to, I guess, do better asset management for satellites, uh, just like you would for any other expensive uh, kit and infrastructure here on Earth. What sorts of um, health checks can you do remotely? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, so, yeah, pretty much uh, as as many as you can do with, I guess, detail from the outside. So the most obvious one is that uh, when you're operating a satellite, and, and every satellite's a robot, uh, it's probably good to point out, but when you're when you're operating one of these space robots <laughs> uh, from Earth, you often get these uh, little quirks in power, and sometimes the the power drops. There's a step change, and it drops uh, off, and it stays that way forever. And the the reason we think is because of either micrometeoroid impacts, or um, uh, it can be some kind of radiation damage, or or something else. And the point is that. It could be any one of those faults, and each one of those faults could have implications for the future life of the satellite. But right now, we can only identify one of the faults has occurred. So if you've got another satellite looking at, say, the solar power collector um, on the, the damaged satellite, uh, then you're able to see and, and detect how that damage has manifested and what implications it might have for the, the satellite's later life. Uh, and that's just one example. There are there are many others. So uh, there was a half billion dollar satellite that exploded earlier this year. Uh, communications satellite, uh, really expensive piece of kit. Only three years into its fifteen year life as well. So they really didn't get as much value as they they wanted. Um, I won't name any of the companies involved. Uh, but one of one of the issues was that the uh, I guess the report came back. There was a full investigation done when something this expensive just spontaneously stops working. Um, and, oh, and by the way, there was one more piece of information. So there is a company with telescopes on Earth looking up. And so they look at every satellite in the same orbit, which we call geostationary orbit, um, and they just observe them for as long as they can, except in the middle of the day when the sun's kind of glaring too much. But the rest of the day, they're looking up. And they did notice an explosion or a, a puff that happened out of the, the little pixel that they see puffed into a bigger uh, a number of pixels. Um, and that corresponded with when the data stopped passing down to us. So we, we know something happened. It was probably an explosion. But how, how did the explosion happen? Well, the report says it could have been an internal explosion or it could have been uh, something externally exploding into the satellite. So pretty much it could have been anything. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's not really good enough when you want to... So was it, was it a fuel pipe uh, that... So the, the type of fuel that's used on a lot of these satellites actually expands when it gets cold. Was it a fuel pipe that got too cold? Uh, or was it, a, yet again, a, a meteoroid? Was it a piece of space debris that was from another satellite? And if that space debris was from another satellite, was another country liable to pay uh, for the damages and, and therefore would all these losses be recouped um, by, that, by the, the people who, you know, nominally own the debris or was it something else entirely that we've not even thought of so 
these issues are becoming more and more frequent. Um, and the other thing is we're launching more and more satellites. So we're at about 2,500 active satellites today. We're going up to a, around about 80,000 based on current announced numbers uh, in within 10 years' time. And as the number of satellites increase, we've got to become better and better and better at managing these assets um, and really understanding what's happening so we don't, I guess, destroy the environment uh, in space, which is one of our, our greatest assets uh, to life here on Earth and, and to modern life in particular. How do we keep that uh, environment as pristine as possible or as, as usable as possible? You mentioned that um, the, some of the companies or that there is a company now that is on the ground tracking these. Mm. Is it most, mostly um, commercial initiatives, this whole like maintenance, monitoring, health tracking? Um, or how much of a role does government play in it? And do you think that that trend is changing? Oh, yeah. No, actually, that's a really brilliant question because uh, government's been doing kind of interesting asset management activities in space for the last uh, 30 years, uh, which is kind of a maybe even earlier than that. Maybe there's something I haven't thought of. Um, but, I mean, a, a great example uh, is the Hubble telescope, which was maintained twice. So literally shuttles were launched to go understand the maintenance issues on the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, and it was a very expensive um, piece of infrastructure in the first place. And, and also there are a lot of, I guess, lead-on activities that couldn't happen without it. So there was a lot of science funding that was bottlenecked um, because it couldn't be deployed to the researchers that would otherwise be using it. So um, the U.S. government thought it was, it was uh, intelligent, and I think this was the right choice, to go up there and, and really repair that asset. And there have been other cases of satellites that have uh, just not worked on orbit. Um, and again, the, the shuttle has gone up and uh, collected. There's one example of a shuttle collecting that satellite, bringing it back to Earth, refurbishing it on Earth, and then taking it back into orbit, which is amazing. <laughs> so probably, to be clear, None of these satellites is particularly high altitude. So Hubble Space Telescope is about 800 kilometers. And I think this other satellite was around six or 700 kilometers. So they weren't particularly high on the scale of things. The satellite I was just talking about that uh, uh, exploded in geostationary orbit was 37,000 kilometers above the Earth. So um, real changes in scale there. Um, so it hasn't been possible for many assets and its government was pretty much the only customer that could afford it for the longest time. Um, and for the government customer to pay for this, there has to be huge taxpayer will uh, to get in there because each of these projects needs to really be um, put through the, the government rigor and, and generally it takes you know a good few years um, to, to get the funding through. So the, the fact that funding was through for, for these missions was uh, phenomenal, but generally uh, governments played a big role in these past missions. It's been a very sporadic customer because of the challenges in terms of funding. Um, and pro probably the other thing is that uh, they're just 
weren't that many satellites before. So as the number of satellites is expanding exponentially, there becomes a whole new, I guess, uh, the meaning out there to, to want to do this commercially and, and, and particularly because the majority of 80,000 satellites that are going up are commercial satellites. So there really needs to be a solution that works um, in a business sense. So speaking of, um, who are your customers or your potential customers? Ah, uh, yes. Great question again. Um, so, yeah, Im- importantly, we're operating mainly in lower orbit at the moment. So, uh, sadly, the name's a little bit of a misnomer. When we started the company uh, first, well, we were looking at uh, asteroid resources, which uh, largely passing through high orbit. Quickly found that there weren't many customers for that kind of data. Uh, then started looking at geostationary orbit. So we'd, we'd still be in high Earth orbit, uh, looking down slightly at geostationary. Um, and, and geostationary is interesting. That's where the majority of satellite value uh, still sits today. So most of the satellites going up to that particular orbit are around the half billion dollar mark uh, US. And some of them are, uh, one to two billion dollars as well, which is pretty amazing. So we, we thought that we could uh, really provide value to those customers. Uh, the only caveat being that it would take us a um, couple of years at least uh, to get up to that kind of altitude and we would have to build uh, specialist hardware to get us there. What we discovered this year whilst talking to customers is that people have really critical problems with uh, usually more uh, low-cost and, and um, value-creating satellites in low Earth orbit. So people have huge issues. Identification is one of them, where uh, 20% of all commercial satellites launched to that orbit are never identified by their owners, which just blew my mind. 20%, did you say? Yeah, that blew wow. my mind when I heard the statistic. And uh, universities are even worse. They're around 50% failure rate so it's uh just incredible um and and identification is one of the the problems holding you back so if you can't identify which satellite belongs to you and you're trying to reboot it then you're essentially um sending up radio reboot signal to every single um unidentified satellite from the same launch so you, you have radar points that have come out of a rocket so you know it's one of those radar points but you're trying to beam up at each one of them and, and really uh, playing whack-a-mole, trying to understand which one <laughs> will react to your reboot signal. And even, even when it does, uh, or yeah, if, even, even when you do get a hit on your satellite, then you might have to wait uh, for it to come back around before it starts talking down to you. So um, Heaps of issues there, heaps of time potentially wasted, and sometimes it, it isn't even effective. Sometimes you'll never recover it. Um, and on top of the 20%, there's, there's, um, the, the numbers here are a little less clear, but around 40% of um, all satellites uh, of, the, of the remaining 80%, uh, so about half of the remainder, are just it takes a really long time to do it. So often weeks um, and sometimes months to first identify yourself and then um, establish a, a connection. So it's really hard to do. Um, and 
uh, it's something that we can help with uh, reasonably quickly using visual identification. So we do a flyby using our satellite, take a photo, use some um, computer recognition tools, so generally machine learning uh, database, to uh, understand which satellite our photo matches to from that launch. Um, and if it's yours, we'll provide you a positive idea and say, that's you, so you can just focus your energies on this one radar point in the sky. Um, so yeah, that, that's the way we're, we're helping people right now. Oh, and by the way, the, the critical time to do this is within 24 hours because you generally have um, finite battery life uh, on your satellite. So getting it done within that initial 24 hours from launch is super critical. So that's, that's our ambition. We're not quite there yet. Uh, it takes a little longer on average for us to um, look at every single satellite from a launch, but we're, we're progressing towards that goal. And what happens after the first 24 hours? Usually the, the battery will start to run flat or, um, yeah, the, the chances of recovery uh, become narrow uh, after that time. Some, sometimes they're fine. Sometimes they're operating by themselves. They just don't know they need to talk down to the owners um, on Earth. So um, that that's sometimes possible as well. There, there's all sorts of uh, issues that happen. And I think because there are so many, it's been tough for people to solve up till now. And, and I guess uh, not, not that people... Not that many people have been uh, audacious enough to say, why don't we just take photos of these things and have a look? <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of weird talking to customers. You, you kind of blow their minds. They're like, is that possible? You're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so are you appealing now to mostly other like young companies who are just getting into launching their satellites? Or are you um, working with companies that have already established like a constellation in space or that kind of thing. Yeah, I would I would say we're um, appealing to the new space market. So they're not necessarily young companies. Um, they they could be ten years old, but they're generally thinking in that mindset. So they're not thinking in what we call the old space mindset, which is extremely conservative. One of the most uh, conservative industries um, on earth, uh, weirdly. Uh, but so. Yeah, space is a little bit backwards, uh, which is pretty odd to say. But uh, new space, so people with, I guess, more of a, a Silicon Valley mindset to, to space, um, and some of those companies are quite large and, and uh, aging a little bit now, uh, but they're generally more willing to, to jump on board. Um, and they're the, usually the ones with uh, these huge problems as well, where they're really trying to cut down the costs of launching satellites, and then there's... Uh, uh, generally, um, issues that come along with with cutting those costs uh, may manifest in in a variety of ways. So you mentioned um, that like identification and and computer vision and that sort of thing is one of the things you're focused on. Um, in what other ways are satellites or space robots, as you call them, similar or different um, to regular robots? Or like, how are the technical challenges different? Yeah. Um, yeah, really uh, interesting question. Well, I mean, the the first thing is that you you generally don't have a medium to push against, or the medium you use to push against is extremely different and weak. Um, so that's that's interesting. So you still actuate um, on a satellite, but it's generally 
um, internal actuation or you create a medium by using a thruster uh, to push against. So you, you literally blow up some gas so you've got something to push back to push back on to push you forward. Um, so I think I think that's pretty challenging, and that's I think that's why people say uh, you know the whole it's not rocket science thing. Well, <laughs> rocket science probably isn't as hard as most people think, but yeah, it's kind of it's different, and I think that's the important thing. The environment's different, um, and probably probably another thing. So actuations one, uh, the next one is the super harsh radiation environment. So already on Earth, robots are affected by radiation, but nowhere near as many times as in space. One example, in Australia, we had an uh, aircraft that uh, dropped 500 meters um, from its cruising altitude and freaked everyone out on board. Uh, really terrible uh, accident. And then the, uh, they, they looked into what might have happened. It turned out one of the bits flipped. Um, on their uh, flight computer, um, and it was probably due to a stray radiation particle that made it all the way through the atmosphere. So that doesn't happen. Was it truly just one bit? Just one bit. Um, I get. Wow. I guess it was the the 512 meters bit. So <laughs> <laughs> one became zero. That's a big one. Yeah, yeah. At least it wasn't one of the higher up ones, right? So it wasn't <laughs> like five kilometers would have been a a bad one. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, bad bit to flip, um, but that 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 happens much more often in space. So bits are flipping constantly. Uh, people are trying to come up with ways to, uh, I guess, uh, mediate that risk. So um, either software hardening or or um, hardware hardening. Um, so you can just you know churn it with radiation before you send it up and and try and. Um, cut down on on some of the risk there. Or the other thing you might do is um, have a computer be able to identify um, bits flipping, or or have redundant computers on board which can reference each other. And uh, these are just some of the ways people are, are trying to do that. The next thing that's different is localization, uh, which is really hard to do. So some satellites use GPS, uh, but they're flying at extreme velocities. So it's, uh, it's a bit of a different challenge there. Um, and then on top of that, uh, you've got some satellites that are above the GPS satellites as well. So um, they have real troubles uh, localizing. And there's a report that came out um, about two years ago now, where I think the average error um, from understanding where you were to where you actually actually were in uh, in mainly in geostationary orbit, which is above above the GPS constellation, um, their average error was about three kilometers. Uh, so wow. <laughs> it's pretty huge. I mean, I mean, uh, in that part of space, it's it's not that big, but it as you become more congested, it really matters. Three kilometers matters a lot. Um, and in particular, uh, when they get debris, debris uh, uh, I guess, warnings about when debris might hit your satellite, sometimes they're within a kilometer. So if you move in one direction, then you might get closer to the piece of debris. And if you move in the other direction, you, you will definitely get further away. But which direction is the right one uh, mm -hmm. to move in? So <laughs> it's... Uh, 
it's uh, kind of a ridiculous uh, situation up there. And there are uh, people that are trying to solve that problem. But again, moving a conservative um, business that, that that exists in that particular orbit is is really difficult. So those are three challenges. There's probably heaps more I could think of, but they're, they're three pretty good ones. Yeah. So why did you choose um, to sort of market yourself as a robotics company? Ah, great, great question. Um, yeah, so, well, yes, every every satellite's a robot. But uh, I think particularly we when we started, we had three uh, mechatronics engineers, um, all with PhDs on the team. Uh, we've, we've scaled back uh, to uh, one uh, mechatronics PhD and one aerospace PhD, which is much more, uh, I guess, fair. <laughs> but, but yeah, when we, when we started, they said we've got to have robotics in the title. I'm like, really, guys? So you were just outvoted. <laughs> I was outvoted. Um, but I, th- I think what's interesting about that mindset. So we've we've carried that mindset on uh, with you know, uh, em- even with employees changing through time. Uh, I think the robotics mindset is a really good one to apply to space. So in space, you just think about, well, the way I think about it is that you have a complete system in your mind and then you have to, I guess, put it together to spoke. Um, but what's been happening in, in space actually is that different parts have been put on um, to satellites and, and generally those parts, they try and make them a bit more uh, off the shelf. Um, and in robotics, that's what's done, but even a, a bigger way. So Definitely uh, modular systems. And you try to have systems that talk to each other and then you can um, interface. So you have standards so you can interface between uh, different products quite easily and then people are building drivers all the time. Yeah, so um, that's that's getting closer to where we want to be. We want to be uh, more robotics-focused and, and um, try, to, try to build things the way roboticists do, get that really fast turnaround, um, buy equipment that's already there, uh, put it together, see if it works, and then try and uh, uh, scale up uh, the, the industry or the, the state of the art from there rather than going the other way, designing everything, uh, making sure it's you know perfect or making sure more often than that uh, that it looks like everything else that's ever come before and then launching a very expensive piece of kit. So... I think we need to take on more of a robotics mindset in space in general. Hmm. That's a really good point. Thanks. Well, I think that's pretty much all the time we have. Lily, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. And that's the end of today's podcast. As always, check out robohop.org forward slash podcast for more exciting episodes. And if you have any feedback for us, We're always happy to hear from our listeners, whether it's a suggestion for an interview topic or maybe an interviewee, a question about one of our episodes, or maybe you'd like to get involved in the podcast yourself. Get in touch with our director, Abate, at abate.de.mey at robohub.org. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Space Robots with Robohub, the podcast for news 
and views on robotics.